Hey everyone, I'm Brandon Chu and welcome to the Black Box of Product Management, a podcast where we shine light on the underlying principles of building products and companies from some of the most accomplished product people in the world. Today, I am joined by Avram Lowry, VP of Product at a hot Canadian startup, Wealthsimple, which just raised at a $5 billion valuation to continue to bring innovative financial products to the world. Avram was previously the VP of Product at FreshBooks and started his career as a PM at Microsoft in Seattle. Uh, I've known Avram for a really long time. He is a powerhouse product thinker with an unmatched depth of capability in engineering and design. Welcome to the show, Avram. Thanks for having me, Brandon. A long time listener. <laughs> of uh, the one episode that I released uh, before this. That's yeah. yeah. Uh, Avram, as is customary, I like to just start you know, with a question kind of out of nowhere. And with you, I wanted to ask, what's your favorite comic book? Ooh, it's uh, a great question. I do read a lot of comic books. There's a book called Transmetropolitan. It's sort of loosely based on the character of Hunter S. Thompson, the gonzo journalist, but it's set in the far future. And it is some of the most inventive sci-fi you could possibly ever imagine. And I think what I like about it is there's so many sci-fi tropes. They're just so unimaginative and so basic and sort of like they don't even fulfill the real spirit of what sci-fi is supposed to be, which is like a glimpse into what's possible and something truly novel. And this book does that in spades. Um, and in fact, like predicted a bunch of things that have come true because it was written in the early days of the internet. And it's like, it predicted a lot of some of the metaphors of the internet, like streams. And in any case, it's a, it's an amazing book. Uh, highly recommend it. Great. But yeah. You alluded to a post you wrote, like about how comic books and product management intersect. Any, any gist you can give on, on, on what the connection is in your mind? Yeah, the post is just my, uh, it was like a cathartic thing to write about how I don't like reading business books. <laughs> and, and it was a vehicle for me to sort of write that. And I guess the real premise of that post is that like so much of the learning that, you know, we do or we're told to do is linear. It's like you want to learn about products, read the, you know, a guide to agile product management. You want to learn about business, like read, you know, you know, read an MBA sort of syllabus. I'm not saying that those books are not, are not useful. They're, they are. But I guess in my experience, I find that divergent thinking is best in, and real creativity is, is, is sort of best inspired by the places that you least sort of expect it. Mm. So that can be comic books, but it can also be like modern art. It can also be, it can be so many different things. Like I remember before university exams, I would study really, really hard directly from the syllabus and, you know, do a lot of practice problems. And then right before bed, I'd watch a TED talk. <laughs> on a completely unrelated topic. And the reason why I would do it is I always found that it like pushed the bounds of creativity. And before I went to sleep, it was just a great way of freeing your mind from the bounds of the topic that you were studying and the narrow constraints mm. of that. And it would just, I think, hope, I mean, I don't know, maybe it was, maybe it was purely placebo effect, but it would make me more creative and more capable on the actual exam that I sort of set aside the work and looked at something else and ultimately found inspiration in that thing to do better on the exam. So that's kind of like the premise of that blog post. I'd love to talk a lot about your experiences. Like you've had a really, really rich career. You spent a lot of time in, in Microsoft, I think, where you honed a lot of foundational skills around product management, but then also had some pretty storied careers, both at FreshBooks, a growth stage company in, in Toronto, Canada, and, and recently Simple. I'd love to start you know, all the way back uh, before we get into those things around, like, just give us a brief overview of, of 
you know, growing up your childhood, what were the influences in your early life and, and sort of how you ended up, let's say all the way up to uh, Microsoft? I'm, I'm originally from Toronto, first of all. My parents actually were both uh, former sort of bureaucrats in, in Ottawa, uh, but they were both very intellectual. My dad was an economist and my mother worked you know, basically in public policy. They, they sort of really pushed myself and my, my siblings academically. And it was, a real, it was a sort of a real intellectual culture that I think they tried to create you know, in, the, in the household, sometimes <laughs> to unwilling children. <laughs> I, you know, I, I really sort of benefited a lot from that sort of culture that we grew up into. And my, my father's sort of mathematical focus, he's also an amateur mathematician. He has been trying to solve Goldbach's conjecture for the last, I think, like 30 years you know, really sort of helped push my interest in sort of math and science and ultimately computer science and computer engineering. And, what, and why not? Why not politics? Uh, I think both my parents were <laughs> maybe a little disillusioned by politics at oh, some okay, level. Like it, they're, very, they're very, very passionate about politics, but perhaps not as a career. On the one side, that was my father's contribution. But on my mom's side, you know, she pushed me on writing and effective communication and and I think ultimately, you know, was sort of just as catalytic for me and ultimately ending up in the profession that I did, which is product management. So, so I think the two of them really contributed to, you know, the, the profession that I ended up in. But by no means did I like go to school thinking I was going to be a product manager. I don't think I even knew what a product manager was. Now, I guess what I'd say is that I really did like software and I'd done software courses in high school. And I, I was pretty sure that I wanted to end up in software, but I went to computer engineering thinking that it was going to be mostly software didn't really do sufficient research into the actual curriculum and didn't realize that like for two and a half years, they trained you to be like an analog uh, electrical engineer. I did not like that and was not good at it. Uh, I will be the first to admit it. But I, I partially, mostly blame myself for not actually researching the curriculum and realizing that maybe computer science would have been a better uh, choice for me. But by the third and fourth year, I really got... I really got to focus on software. So, you know, two, two out of four years is focusing on what I was actually interested in. That's not so bad. And did you know, did you know in the third and fourth year that like, were you moving towards being an actual like software engineer or did you already know that you wanted some broader role? One of the things I always struggled with is that they don't really teach you, at least they didn't, the fundamentals of programming patterns and, and you know, for, you know, practical applications, like real world code that would be yeah. shipped at a company like WellSimple or Shopify or, or what have you. They teach you a lot of the math and the theory behind it. But like, I would often submit assignments like we had an optimizing compilers class, which was actually a lot of fun. <laughs> like my final assignment was submitted and it was like a 4,000 line single function. And so <laughs> I, it worked, but it, it ultimately you know, didn't obviously represent a lot of the design principles that are elemental to writing production code in an industry context. There was no incentive to structure it properly. All they're testing for in the assignment is input output. And so I was always in the back of my mind worried that I was not actually being trained to be a developer uh, because they really didn't teach that. I can say that um, why I ultimately decided on product management, it's another one of these spur of the moment decisions that like decide the rest of your life. I was walking through the Bain Center at U of T and going to a calculus lecture. And I um, was late and the professor, the professor saw me come in and asked me to leave because he didn't <laughs> want, was, had a policy against lateness. So that was embarrassing. So I left the, the, the Bain Center in sort of shame. And I was walking through the lobby of the Bain Center and a Microsoft recruiter 
was standing in the lobby. Again, I was like, well, at least I should make the most of being thrown out of a lecture. And, and uh, I had a crumpled up resume in my bag, uh, which I proceeded to like unfurl and hand <laughs> to the recruiter. And we just had a really good conversation about software and technology and Microsoft. And I was a Microsoft fanboy at the time. It was just a really good sort of human conversation. We weren't talking about algorithms, data structures. We were just talking about software in the industry. And it was, it was fun. You know, on the basis of that, the, the recruiter thought I would be, you know, a candidate for an interview. And then I was sitting in the waiting room for the, my interview. Oh, wait, this was on the spot? Like they were doing interviews on the spot? There? No, it was, it was a couple days later. It was a couple, oh, a couple days, days later, later they were doing interviews. And there was a pamphlet. The pamphlet had three roles. Software development and test, which is like a QA. Engineer, you know, software de development engineer, which is like a, you know, dev. And then program manager, they called it, which is just a product manager. I think largely by process of elimination, I chose the program manager because I was like, mm, I'm not sure if I'm actually really good at programming, you know, in a, again, in a professional, practical context. I didn't really think that QA was that interesting of a role. And I was like, well, this is the one job that's left. And so that's what I'll interview for. That's funny. I mean, I, ha I haven't regretted it, but interesting that that's how some of your life decisions get made. Did you research after what the hell it was? Like, what were they, what did they interview you about? <laughs> uh, it's funny because as an intern, it's the one time when you're interviewing for pro a program management position at the big companies, they still give you programming challenges. Uh, and then a bunch of sort of basic design questions, like um, designing uh, a car uh, for the blind. That was like one of the, one of the sort of case studies I got at the at sort of the Microsoft interview on, on campus. What, what, what's your philosophy and, and thoughts actually on, on asking PMs in interview processes to code? I know it's not universal, but you, you know, is there is there an appropriate time for for that type of interview strategy? Uh, I don't think the ability to code is a necessity for a product manager. What I would say though is, so as a result, it's it's not part of my interview process. What I do believe is important is to be conversant in technology, to be conversant in not necessarily syntax of code, but how code works and sort of logical system design as opposed to technical system design. And that I believe doesn't require an engineering background or a computer science background. So as a result, they don't necessarily sort of test for coding ability, but I do test for sort of logical thinking, which is you know foundational to code. I mean, code is just sort of written logic. And so there are things that you can test for that are in, in an interview context and probe for that are ultimately more meaningful to me than whether a person can actually just write code. Okay, so you got the job. You're moving to Seattle. Tell me about what it was like actually having this job. Like, what was it versus your expectation? And like, how those, I think it was what, four years total? Yeah, three and a half years. Yeah, three and a half years. Like, you know, what, what you took away from that experience? Yeah, I mean, Microsoft is, and, you know, Google and Facebook and, and the larger sort of tech companies are great because they're hiring people like me at a school who have zero skills. Whether you're a developer or not, you really, you really have an academic understanding of of software and, and the math behind it, but ultimately you don't know anything. And so I guess I'll forever be grateful for companies like Microsoft who are willing to sort of basically take a loss on someone like me while they teach me what it means to be a product manager or pro program manager in their vernacular, but do so in a environment that isn't academic is very practical where as an intern and even as a you know, junior employee, you're like shipping features that are used by billions of users, which is like pretty exciting. It's kind of unparalleled. Um, and a lot of startups, 
I you know, can't take the risk on hiring someone out of school, even if they're entrepreneurial and ambitious, because they just can't afford the risk. It's kind of like an unparalleled opportunity. I worked for a couple of different teams at Microsoft. I worked for Office, and I worked for Windows, and I worked for Search. You know, a good exposure to a variety of different sort of contexts. Microsoft sort of ran its course for me. When you start to realize that like at a company of that size and scale, where you have just armies of product managers on every team, mm-hmm. the scope and scale that you get as an individual, even as a senior individual, which I, I never really became at, at, at Microsoft, but like you could see seniors, is still pretty limited. Like what's not limited is the, the size of your user base, but yeah. the scope of what you're delivering to that user base is like really, really narrow. Can you give an example? Yeah, I remember. Uh, I mean, I worked on the new tab page in our Explorer 9. I worked on the new so tab page. So you create page. a new tab and then whatever by default is showing? Okay. Yeah, yeah. So that was like one of the features I own. After about a year working in the new tab page, I think I once was on, the <laughs> call, on a call with my, my dad and I was like, there are five elements on this page. You know, like a favicon, a site title, and a ranking of how popular this site is for you. And I was like, I think I'm gonna go crazy if I spend another year working on a feature that has three elements. Like there's only so many combinations and permutations you can do with three elements. Can you actually explain, like how does a year go by working on a part of an experience like that? Why does it take that long, if not even longer? Like what is your day-to-day as a PM like that? A lot of the work is sort of getting upfront alignment on strategy and the manifestation of that strategy in terms of a roadmap and, and the articulation of that roadmap in terms of features and you know uh, how they manifest themselves. That upfront part takes a long time, especially at a company of that size and scale, which is to agree on what, you know, what the right set of investments truly is. And, and often it's not as linear as I just sort of made it out to be, which is you, you have to get to the point of something tangible that people can see and then they're like, yeah, okay, I understand this now. Definitely don't want to build that. <laughs> so you have to. So you know, even if you think you have sort of alignment on sort of high level strategy and then and then sort of high level roadmap, and then you get to the sort of the tangible aspects, you realize that you you actually never had alignment in the first place. Other thing that was certainly true, I mean, especially on Internet Explorer, was dealing with like a legacy code base that has mm-hmm. more than a decade's worth worth of sort of legacy code behind it, and so even what you would you know, what you would assume would be a relatively straightforward change um, is not anything but. It is, you know, it involves a fundamental rewiring of uh, the application for something that you would assume would be like sort of relatively trivial in an absolute sense, but it really isn't. Very talented engineers are working on, you know, again, what on the surface seem like fairly simple problems, but in the context of a legacy code base like IE, it's not a simple problem at all. It's a very, very complicated problem. And so I think that's also part of what makes it, it challenging is you have to like navigate that uh, that context. What of your entire experience there is like the project you're most proud of, or even the project that was more most interesting to you in terms of the domain or the the things that you learned from it could be could have been a failed project as well. Uh, but but what's the, the the one that you took away the most from? So after about two and a half years living in Seattle, I actually moved back to Toronto. It was an opportunity. I've always wanted to move home. But when I moved back to Microsoft Canada, I was working for, you know, working out of the satellite office, actually working on Bing.ca, the the Canadian search engine. You know, the thing that you realize when you work out of a satellite office is that it's like Canada is a secondary market. It's not really the focus. People want to win the U.S. You're a little bit of an afterthought and not 
that's not necessarily a bad decision uh, insofar as like, you know, especially at the time, like winning search in the US was just such a more lucrative prize, much harder, but, you know, certainly more lucrative prize. In the uh, in the Canadian context, you know, you don't have much, you don't have many resources assigned to you, and you have to figure out how to have an impact in a in a highly constrained environment. So, you know, in in part to sort of challenge myself and to make the job as interesting as I could, I basically sought out a external partnership with a actually Toronto startup to launch a Bing shopping vertical within the Canadian market. So basically we had zero resources, engineering resources. Well, how, what do you do? Well, you partner, but Microsoft doesn't want, you know, to build sort of third-party experiences that, you know, don't feel native to Microsoft. So great. Well, like, let's actually integrate this third party in, in you know, as deep a way as possible. So we worked with this Toronto startup and basically like delivered a fully white labeled Bing shopping vertical that felt completely native. It was on the Bing.ca domain. Like it was, you know, it was sort of indistinguishable from the native functionality. And we did it with a PM. Uh, I think I had a, a sort of a, a counterpart in marketing and that was it. And I remember when, you know, you go through sort of the, the last mile of launching something at Microsoft and they're like, great. So who's your operations team is going to monitor, monitor site reliability, you know, 24-7. I was like, I guess that'd be me. <laughs> I guess I'll be on call always. Um, so maybe bit off a little more than I could chew, but we launched it. It worked. It didn't go down. Uh, we figured out sort of those kinks, but it was a fun sort of opportunity to sort of leverage partnerships to do something really big in a, in a highly constrained context, which was a satellite market that, you know, just doesn't have the full attention of the, the mothership. So it was Great. fun. Amazing. And on the back of that experience, you decided to leave. Yes, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, think, I, I think ultimately realized that like one of the reasons why I decided to sort of transition to Microsoft Canada was because I actually hadn't built no network in the sort of the tech community in Toronto. I didn't know much about it. Remember my parents sort of FedExed me a Toronto life all about the renaissance of Canadian tech. We're actually uh, Mike McDermott, uh, our, former, our former boss and CEO of FreshBooks was actually mentioned. Uh, I knew nothing. I had no contacts. I had just been in school and the only contacts I had for tech were in Seattle. You know, moving back via Microsoft Canada was an opportunity for me to build a bit of a network and just develop some awareness of what, you know, what was happening in Canadian tech. And again, I, you know, having grown up in, in Toronto and in Canada, you know, I always really wanted to move back to Canada to support Canadian tech because I find the rain drain is a self-fulfilling prophecy. Which is like the you know um, if no one ever comes back, then there will be no companies here and no no mentors here and no senior folks and um, so people will keep leaving. And so, in order to sort of break the cycle, you know we need Toronto found we need sorry Canadian founders we need and we also need folks who've you know gotten experience abroad to come home and share that experience locally. And I just I I see the investment that Canada made in me, you know over the course of my education and. Um, I have a sense of sort of loyalty to sort of pay some of that back um, and contribute back to the environment here. And so I always wanted to, and, and I realized I wasn't gonna really be able to do that as working out of a satellite office. And I had a great time working at Microsoft, but ultimately decided to look for a Canadian founded company, Canadian led company, and, and ultimately take a job. Ultimately, I, I took a job with FreshBooks as, as a product manager.
So maybe describe what FreshBooks is and then talk about like why you decided to go from, I don't know how large Microsoft was at the time, call it 25, 50,000 employees or something like that uh, to a very small pre-funding, even pre, pre-venture funded, maybe 30 people, 40 people when you joined? I think it was 60, but yeah. 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 Why um, did you want that experience? Because there, there were other, there are larger tech companies in, in Canada. You know, it's interesting that you decided to go to a, a scrappier, more entrepreneurial type of experience. And uh, I, I want to know, I want to know why. Sure. I think part of it is what I said before, which is that, you know, although I hadn't worked at a startup, just awareness that the product management position at a startup would just naturally have to involve larger scope and just more ownership out of necessity because, you know, there's they don't have an army of PMs working on a you know particular product or feature. They have like maybe one. <laughs> I think the other thing that I'll, I'll be sort of honest and candid about is that when I went for my first interview at FreshBooks, I remember sort of being enamored with what felt like a very startup environment, which was un- completely unfamiliar to me going from school right to Microsoft, which was like the, you know, the, all the startup tropes and uh, cliches, like the ping pong table and uh, the arc- the old arcade machines in the corner, the sort of very open concept office. There was something, even though like, you know, a lot of people don't like open concept offices, there was something very different and less corporate about it than mm-hmm. Microsoft, where like literally I had an office as a new grad, which was hilarious with a door on it and everything. Uh, my name on the door, like there was something that just felt more sort of informal and I don't know, rebellious, different uh, about it. And again, these are all like startup tropes that are all played out fully, but like it was exciting. For, for, for listeners, like for, if I could throw a story in there, like FreshBooks is a especially zany place where if you show up on an interview, let's say on like Halloween day, like your interviewee will be, could be anything. Like they're fully dressed. Like Halloween's a very serious thing at the company. And what's cool about it is like, we even have candidates that come in and they know that about the culture. So they just come in fully dressed too, which I think is hilarious <laughs> and awesome. And they're actually like, they have the highest hire rate. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it, it has a, a culture like that. That was exciting to me. And I remember at Microsoft, we had gone for an outing as, a, as the Toronto team to go watch The Social Network uh, when it came out. And I remember, I never worked, I mean, it's a movie, first of all, but I never worked in that kind of a context before of a startup environment. And I remember watching the movie being like, oh, wow, uh, you know, this is how startups are. And I, I realized, not really true. But at the same time, I, when I went to FreshBooks, I was like, oh, maybe there's some truth to it. Maybe it's, you know, it has it has that sort of uh, a vibe to it. And, and anyway, I just, I wanted to try something very, very different. And ultimately, I felt that, you know, I felt moving to another sort of large company would probably be a, a very lateral experience. I'd certainly learn a different way of working, but uh, I the context would be very similar. Um, and so I wanted to sort of radically change things up with a completely different context. So so um, you spent uh, a chunk of time at FreshBooks, seven, seven years, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when you joined the company was, was how big? And when you left, it was how big? 60. And I think when I left, it was like 350, maybe 400. Yeah. So very significant growth. Uh, and, yeah. and it had raised you know multiple rounds of venture financing, launched multiple products. In the arc of your entire career, how do you think about what FreshBooks was to your career? Actually, you know what? I interject for a second. For those uh, listeners that don't know what FreshBooks is, is, it's a cloud accounting platform. Started off as an, an invoicing product that really helps mostly service-based businesses invoice their end clients. So like if you're Anyone charging for your time, like a lawyer or a plumber or, or a freelancer or whatnot, it's software that helps you like track that time, set rates, send invoices and get paid. And then it evolved into a more robust, uh, uh, full accounting platform. 
So, sorry, I just wanted to share that just so people know. No, it's good context. So what was FreshBooks' sort of role in my sort of career? Like Microsoft, I'm sort of eternally grateful to FreshBooks for the career development opportunities that sort of it provided for me. I would say that ultimately it did give me the, the scope that I sought, <laughs> that I thought it would. It's like, other than at the time, uh, my boss, who was the sort of the head of product and design uh, when I first joined, um, I was the only product manager. It really did give me the sort of the, the, the scope and scale of you know, responsibility that I, that I sought. But it was also the place where I was there for seven years. Um, it was also the place where I had an opportunity to progress from product manager to senior product manager to you know, a manager of product managers and ultimately to you know, director and then VP. So like, it was a place where I got to really experience like a pretty significant evolution in what it was that I did going from sort of individual contributor to manager to sort of leader and then into executive. You know, in seven years is a long time, but that's not actually that long when you consider the number of steps that the company afforded me. So I think in some ways it helped me accelerate a lot of the development of my, of my career and get exposure to a bunch of different levels of what it, a bunch of different levels of product management, uh, like what it means to do product management at each one of those levels, because none of those levels is better than the other. It, they're just different. The, the problems are different. The work you do is different. The focus is different. And so, and I got to experience the full gamut of it at FreshBooks, which was really exciting to to uh, and challenging to uh, to do, you know, over the course of my tenure there. Uh, for folks that maybe have only been PMs at larger companies, you know, I asked the reciprocal when in Microsoft. Can you kind of give a sense of what that experience is being that sole PM at a very small company? How many hats were you wearing? What were, how many projects were you managing? Many and a lot. <laughs> um, uh, I'd start there. You basically, in the process of, of being sort of 1 p.m., you figure out what your own capacity is because um, basically they're going to keep giving you work <laughs> and there's going to keep, work's going to keep coming out of the woodwork until really you can do no more work. <laughs> So part of it is figuring out for yourself, like, where does that, where does that capacity lie? And, and I don't just mean in terms of like how many hours in a day you can work, because ultimately, you know, um, you don't want to burn out. I think also the question is like, how many things can you really do simultaneously at a certain quality bar? Because like, you can just keep saying yes, and to the point where the company's actually no, no better for it. So as like a, as a PM, you have to, you know, especially in that context, you have to be able and willing to straddle multiple work streams, but you also have to know when, when to tap out and, and when to ask for help. And that can you know, come in many forms, which could mean a, you know, pushing the company for more focus. That can mean pushing the company to hire more <laughs> so we can have PM number two um, mm -hmm. and then three and four. So you're like, in a way, you're, you're representing like the, the boundary of constraint at the company at every time. Like you're a voice of that. Yeah, and which sucks <laughs> because um, no one wants to be the naysayer. I think you once wrote this tweet thread that was so cathartic for every PM in the world, which is how PM product management is like the worst job ever, even though it's seen as so glamorous. But it's true because oftentimes you're the role that has to impl impose the constraint um, and say no and sort of be the <laughs> pour cold water on you know somebody's ambition or somebody's you know what somebody wants, and that's hard. <laughs> So, and it's especially hard in a, in a, in a context like that, where you're trying, 
where you feel like you know the entire sort of success of the product is on your back because it is you're the only product manager. What what about the depth of the work itself as well? Like you know you're a pretty hands on product guy. Uh, mm -hmm. You know you can be a designer's best friend and worst nightmare at the same time. Um, sure. how, <laughs> maybe even describe like the depth of, of 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 how you contributed to the product as well. Like relative, yeah. I think to something like Microsoft where it's probably more you know, doc writing and, and, and stakeholder alignment. I think that's, you know, one of the lessons that FreshBooks imparted on me, which is that uh, when you talk, think about something like design, or you think about, you know, uh, an engineering backlog, or you think about effective copywriting, or you think about the go to market, the lesson that was imparted to me was that it's not, it's, it's never someone else's responsibility. And that doesn't mean you do it all yourself. But that means that you need to feel accountable for all of it. So if the copy isn't where it needs to be, that's not someone else's job to figure out. And you don't ship a suboptimal product that has bad, you know, poor copy because it wasn't your job. You know, you're not a copywriter by trade. And likewise, if the user experience is, you know, is poor, um, well, again, you're ultimately accountable for a high quality user experience. So even though you're not a designer as a PM, you know, you need to enforce sort of the standard of excellence by caring about all that stuff um, and, and truly feeling accountable for all that stuff. And so I'm, I'm pretty hands-on, but I think part of it is because I, I feel accountable for all that stuff. And I, part of that's probably intrinsic, but part of that is also learned. Mike, the CEO, cared deeply about the user experience. And I remember, you know, my, our, and, you know, and, and would, you know, we'd do design reviews with him. And, my first few design reviews were sort of I had delegated to a you know the designer, but really ultimately not been involved in really rigorously thinking things through and making sure that you know the user experience was ultimately accomplishing its goals. They didn't go well <laughs> because Mike felt accountable for the design in a way that I hadn't fully yet internalized, and so you know the the buck was ultimately stopping with him, but but rather because you know he sort of alone felt the sort of the accountability to maintain that quality bar, et cetera. And so I learned very quickly through those, you know, less than good reviews that I needed to care as much as him, if not more, about the details of the user experience, which is something that I ultimately, you know, try and import on, impart on my product managers is that you really need to care about all that stuff. Uh, and I think if you, can, if, you, if you can sort of indenture that level of care, that level of sort of accountability, then you don't have to be as accountable. And, you know, in, in, or in that example, Mike doesn't have to be as accountable because everyone down the stack is caring deeply about every facet of the user experience. Amazing. I think we'll have to be as brief as we can here to the best of our ability, but I would love to talk about the redesign of FreshBooks. This was um, a massive project, like the for, to give everyone context, the product in its first iteration launching in 2000, what? Six, two thousand six, two thousand seven, something like that. Two thousand three, earlier. Two thousand three, sorry. Yeah, uh, had continued for over a decade, and around two thousand fourteen, fifteen, the whole company, in earnest, uh, and and Avram led this work, began a massive replatforming and redesign of the product. So, tell us about this because this is like something a lot of not just PMs but founders, engineers contemplate a lot, like. What was the context that even made that the right decision, uh, specifically to not redesign, but like to actually replatform and basically build a product from scratch? And and what kind of lessons learned do you take away from that? Yeah, 
Um, easily the hardest single project I've ever worked on and, and led. Also very fun and, and exciting and challenging, but really hard. In terms of the genesis, I think that, you know, we, we the product that, you know, as we, as we uh, sort of just discussed, you know, was founded in 2003, you know, before, you know, from a technology perspective, before like there were mature frameworks, everything was hand rolled, everything was uh, built from scratch. And now we were, you know, entering a sort of an era of more mature web applications that, you know, were built on sort of more mature platforms and that unlocked sort of user experiences that, you know, felt as rich as sort of desktop apps, if not richer, we were a little bit hamstrung, to be honest. We couldn't achieve the quality of the experience that we wanted in a time frame that was competitive to the market. And, you know, it's funny when you work on like a code base, again, another, another example of like a legacy code base, what is an insanely hard problem for you would be trivial for another company that was starting fresh. Now, you again, you have like, you also have the benefit of lots of customers and lots of revenue. So it's not, it's not like all bad or anything. But you're at a disadvantage. Like I remember it was a six-month project to deliver pretty URLs on the old platform. Like before, like our, our URLs like basically had like this giant embedded hash in it. And it was like you couldn't copy and paste them because they were gigantic. And so we had a develop like a, a crack team of developers working for six months to get like sensible URLs. Mm-hmm. And that was on the old platform. Six months. I think a lot of people don't realize that this is actually, in my opinion, like the essence of disruption of where it comes from. It's far less about a large incumbent's willingness to innovate or do or not. It's it's like it's technical debt, like yeah. like nine ninety nine times out of a hundred in my mind. Yeah, because with replatforming, you do put the company in existential risk because you know many replatforms fail, and the time that is spent that is burned. Uh, working on that replatforming, if it doesn't ultimately, you know, if it isn't ultimately successful for the company, you know, can ultimately mean that, you know, the company basically gave its competitors, you know, a couple of years or whatever of, of time to sort of leapfrog them. And so, you know, the burden is of responsibility when you choose to do a, a replatform is huge. Ultimately, we couldn't, again, we couldn't achieve the user experience that we wanted in a, in a timeframe that was competitive and, and meaningful, you know, to the market. And so, you know, we decided to, on a pretty bold approach, which is basically to, you know, rebuild the app from scratch, um, leverage some exist, so some of the more modern sort of backend components, but in many ways we were rebuilding everything. One thing we did uh, was um, because FreshBooks had this really large feature set, again, because the, the, you know, the previous product had been worked on for like 10 plus years at the point that we decided to embark on this, you know, redesign, we couldn't like catch up to 10 plus years worth of features, you know, in a short time frame, And so, uh, but we needed, we wanted to get something to market quickly. But it would something that and something that wouldn't confuse our existing customers. So we created like a fake company brand called Bill Spring that was like you know not affiliated with FreshBooks and it allowed us to like ship a really lean MVP, uh, get something to market, like ship something, start to get real world feedback and experience. You know that was that was interesting. That was fun. It was you know kind of like when people talk about like working for a startup with a startup, this was like literally a startup with a startup. It was like a separate like legal entity. Just interject because I want people to really understand like the master plan here. Basically this entire, like, I don't know, at the time, maybe a quarter of the company or something like that starts working as a separate company under a new brand to launch that brand into market so that they can get fast uh, and, and real customer validation as they iterate that product. 
then the idea was we're going to kind of pull back the curtain on it at some point, reveal that it was actually FreshBooks, merge the products, handle migration, get everyone onto the new platform, right? Like this is like the master plan. And it's, uh, I just don't want that to be lost because there was a real, it was very like thought through from the beginning of the project. And it was a massive bet, like uh, about how companies actually execute things like this. Yeah. Yeah. Honestly, to be successful, you need a master plan like that, but you also have to recognize that your master plan is like any best laid plan. <laughs> it will fall apart as soon as you uh, start executing it and you have to course correct and be agile and you know reinvent it every, every quarter, every six months. Um, but it doesn't mean you don't need it. You need it as a starting point. Um, so you can, so you have a baseline that you can course correct from, but I think the experience was that it's, it's so complicated and so unpredictable that what you need to do is just keep shipping, learning, and then course correcting as you go. I will say that, you know, I, I mentioned it was the hardest project ever, and it's not because it was a lot of work and there was a lot of features to rebuild. It was hard because when you ship something that you've worked very, very hard on <laughs> and the initial feedback isn't isn't sort of like an overwhelming, resounding, like positive uh, sentiment from your existing customer base. It's really hard as a product manager, and the the, the reality is that it doesn't. I, I've you know I've said this before, but it's like it doesn't matter if your new experience that you redesigned from scratch is objectively better. If you were able to like have some kind of like objective way of measuring uh, the quality of a product, it wouldn't matter that it's objectively better. The fact is that it's disruptive, it's a change. And in the case of FreshBooks, you're dealing with people's livelihoods. You're dealing with mm -hmm. people's, the way they operate their businesses. So I'm proud of the user experience in the new uh, application that we launched, but the initial reaction I think was, was not exactly what we anticipated because it was different. It was not necessary, it didn't align with the expectations that we ourselves had established with the, Thousands and thousands and thousands of FreshBooks customers who had, you know, come to use, love, and 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 run their businesses and you know put food on the table via the old platform. So again, it doesn't matter that it's that it's better, or it, it matters that it's different. And in this case, different can have real impacts on the on on somebody's business, and that that just hurts as a product totally. person. I think there's also an element of like it's from our perspective inside the company, it's the center of the universe from the perspective of those business owners, it's a tool that they're using among a million other stressors that they have. And yeah. so, you know, when you're adding complexity into their workflow, into their life, it's like, it's got to be a hundred times, 10, hundred times better to really even have a neutral response. Um, yeah. And, and, and even the more vague thing, which is like when the new FreshBooks launched, it was not even at feature parity to the old one, yes. right? A, that's really, really painful for a lot of merchants. Like you want me to move this new powerful thing that is actually worse out of the gate. Yeah. And then tell them basically the law or, or, or communicate to them the longer term story of like, yes, but this thing is going to get better faster in mm -hmm. the long run. It's going to get, and right. that's a very complicated sell. It is a super complicated sell, which is like, you know, one of the learnings is like in, in that first release, I think you also have to be already demonstrably better. And I don't just mean in terms of, you know, a feature parity, feature parity isn't better. You actually have to demonstrate the power of the new platform in a real tangible way where people would be like, okay, I get that there's a trade-off here. I get that there's going to be pain here, but this is unlocking a, 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 like a considerable large set of new value that wasn't I didn't have before. I understand there's a value exchange here, my time and a little bit of frustration to learn a new system, but I'm getting other things. 
But I'll say this: I also don't think that there's a necessary. There's, there's you can you can minimize that reaction to zero. I don't think it's possible. To some degree, you have to anticipate, expect, and be empathetic to that pain, and help your customers navigate it because it's going to happen. It's. I think that if you didn't have pain, you wouldn't have done anything meaningfully different that would have actually advanced you. There's an element that if you played it too safe, such that people were like, I barely noticed a difference, then what have you actually accomplished? Yeah, totally. Probably nothing. I think that there's a part of it that that you have to you have to expect. I think companies like, you know, large consumer companies like Facebook do this all the time, uh, or, or at least have done this in the, all the time. This kind of disruptive innovation. The the reality is you're not affecting somebody's livelihood when you make those kind of changes. You know, you're affecting a consumer platform where people are like frustrated and complain, but eventually get used to it. That is just isn't the case in a sort of a B two B context, and and so you you need to be much more sensitive to it. So how how long did it all take? Just just for people to understand, you know how how big this thing was um, from inception to let's say the new version launching to say maybe we'll end at feature parity when feature parity was achieved. And I asked this setting up the question of what would you do differently if you had to do it again? Right. I would say I think it was like probably maybe six months to get a, to launch under the new brand as sort of a really lean MVP. And then another year uh, before we actually could launch to the existing customer base. And again, a version that was not at feature parity. So that's a year and a half there. And then I'd probably say another year, a year and a half um, of investment in long tail features that you sort of realize are critically important to the long tail customer base. And I think Evernote has had this experience or talked about this experience, which is that like the long tail is the long tail because no customer, like no customers use the same set of long tail features. Everyone uses a different combination and permutation of those features. Mm -hmm. And so you can't build some of them and address the long tail. You have to build all of them and address them in order to address the long tail. And if you don't, I mean, you have to be very prepared with the potential consequences of, of that, which is, mm. which is hard, um, and it's you know it's, it's hard because you know you're you're, you're saying no to a, a customer who is, you know, for whom these features are extremely important. So I guess I, that I put it at three years, you know, total uh, th thereabouts. I was going to say the one piece was the migration, which was incredibly yeah, exactly. difficult and challenging as well. Yeah. Which is isn't the question of just functional migration. Can you move people from platform pl platform A to platform B? But how do you make it a great experience? How do you do it in a way that you know you hold your hands of your customers, you help them understand the benefits of the new platform? You know, how do you switch them from their old billing system to the new billing system? Because that was a change we made as part of this re-platform, like really changed everything. Uh, so uh, insane complexity. Um, yeah, <laughs> insane complexity. Amazing. And uh, last question about Freshbooks, like if you had to do it again, one thing, what would you like if you change one thing about the approach? I think ultimately, when I reflect on it, I would figure out a way to do it more incrementally. So to still have an, an aspiring long-term vision, but um, a way to get there in, in, in stages as opposed to sort of the, the, the hard cut that it ultimately became. And I, that does make the project more challenging, I think, because in some ways sort of... <laughs> The hard cut is a is is a way of simplifying like a, a very complicated complex project, but I think that the benefits of an incremental approach of a more incremental approach I think would probably outweigh the the downsides. 
and when I say incremental approach, yes, we shipped an MVP to, you know, under a different brand. But when I say incremental approach, I mean a more incremental approach for the existing customers. Because I think ultimately it, it felt too much like a monolithic change for those for, 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 for the existing customer base. Mm -hmm. And I think that that made that made it much harder. I think maybe the other thing would be how to lead with net new value, with net new value. A lot of what we were doing was like rebuilding in a much better way the existing functionality, which I think is, was good. But I, I, how do we lead, how do we make the, the hero of this redesign something that is completely net new? I think that'd be the other thing, because I think that would help, as I was saying before, sort of make the transition, make that value trade off just a, a, a better equation for customers. It's not just why you lost or neutral, yeah. it's you've clearly gained something you couldn't do before. Yeah. Yeah. Then you left and you went to Wealthsimple, which is now probably the largest private tech company in Canada. Uh, I believe, I believe so. Yeah. No one quote us on these things, but I think it's roughly yes. true at five, at five billion at a five billion valuation. Uh, I really want to get into the product on this one, and also want to talk to you about building product teams because you've done it now twice, right? From scratch, uh, fairly large product and design organizations. So I wanted to wait till Wealth Simple because I, I wanted to get you know your your latest thinking on, on on this on this practice, you know maybe describe what Wealth Simple is its mission and sort of talk about let's start with the team talk about like how that the product team is structured today and and kind of the principles or techniques you use to build it up uh, to what it is. Sure, I, I think in order to answer that though, I probably need to start with like sort of talk a little bit about the evolution of the product. Uh, yeah, products sure. at, at Wellsimple because I think that's important context. When I joined uh, Wellsimple, which was about three years and two months ago, uh, according to my latest LinkedIn update, um, I the company was like a, a mono product company. Insofar as you know, basically we were sort of passive investing, robo investor inv investing. Although we don't like that term, you know, we kind of combine sort of automation in a diversified portfolio with human advice. But that was that was really the product offering at the time, and the PM team supported that product offering. And so far as there was just a handful of PMs, like two or three, I think three, um, when I first joined, and I had come from FreshBooks, which had twelve or thirteen, so to a much smaller team supporting, you know, the the, the passive investing product, which you know is called WellSimple Invest, um, but was sort of synonymous with WellSimple at the time. In the three years and you know, two months since uh, since I joined, Wellsimple now has five products. Um, you know, still the passive investing product, Invest. We have Trade, the self-directed investing product. We have Crypto, our sort of, you know, crypto um, pl platform. We buy and sell, you know, different kinds of crypto coins. Wellsimple Tax, which was an acquisition, but, you know, basically is a way to file your taxes and is deeply integrated with the sort of the rest of the Wellsimple ecosystem such that, you know, you can automatically import all, import all your tax statements directly from, you know, Wellsimple Invest and Trade and, you know, automatically sort of fill out your taxes. And uh, Wellsimple Cash, which is, you know, our peer-to-peer -peer 
Venmo of Canada, you could think of, or Square Cash of Canada, peer-to-peer sort of um, uh, spending and, and saving app. So just for, you know, maybe American listeners to understand what Wellsimple is here to us Canadians, it's like, we're talking like Betterment plus Robinhood plus Venmo plus, to be fair, maybe a very light version of Coinbase uh, and, and some tax stuff. Like it, it's, it's, it's pretty insane, the coverage that Wellsimple has over like uh, uh, an individual's finances in terms of feature sets. So it's pretty impressive. Yeah, I, I um, and I'll say like, look, I, I, it may have come across as self-aggrandizing by me saying, well, when I joined as uh, head of product, we had one product and now we have five. I'd like to believe I played some role in that product expansion, but I honestly think it's more so a testament to the ambition of the company and the sort of the ability of that company and, and to sort of execute on a ridiculously sort of ambitious vision to become the primary financial relationship of our clients. Not just, you know, where, you know, their passive investments, you know, live, but rather where, you know, where their entire financial lives uh, sort of live. And so, I, you know, I, again, I, I've been along for the ride. It, it's been a, you know, a pretty amazing company to be a part of to just witness that ambition and that growth. Now, I guess getting back to your original question as it relates to the growth of the product team, I mean, we've had to sort of uh, fundamentally restructure the product team a number of times in order to support, you know, this, this product ambition and this massive product growth. The way that we're structured as, an, as, an, as a broader R&D organization and therefore as a product team as well, is we have a set of teams that own each one of the products I mentioned. So basically the products on our website, there's a team that owns each one of them. And so there's, you know, there's a PM that leads sort of trade, there's a PM that leads invest, et cetera. And they were really responsible with like improving the core product fit, product market fit of that product and sort of own sort of top line growth of that product. But then there's also what we call domain teams, which are really platform teams. And those teams and those product managers own some of the cross-cutting, cross-cutting common platform components of our financial ecosystem. So things like, you know, money movement, right? Like depositing funds into a crypto account versus a, you know, passive investing account versus a P2P account really should fundamentally be different. It should use the same rails. You know, it should, it should be a, a very familiar user experience, if not the same user experience. It should be a cross-cutting sort of component that is common to the entire ecosystem. Um, another one would be trading, right? The underlying trading systems that power passive investing versus active invest, investing products could be, should be fundamentally the same, right? So these systems, I think, one of the things that, is, that they have in common is that they are leveraged by at least two products. That's what represents the commonality among the product of uh, platform domains, rather. Now, how this relates to the PM team is I've, product managers exist on a spectrum. All product managers do a little bit of user experience, a little bit of technical, a little bit of growth, a little bit of everything. But the way that individuals' product managers bias is very, is very different from role to role. So a, a, a product manager who works more on product needs to be more focused on sort of disruptive innovation, on growth, on, you know, skew more to, towards user experience. Whereas the platform-focused product managers obviously skew a little bit more technical. They're going to skew more to sort of thinking, sort of systems thinking and platform thinking. They're, they're certainly going to do a little bit of user experience. Um, that's important. It's important to be well-rounded. But what I've learned is that, like, while, you know, we wear many hats, the biases change from role to role. And as, as a result, from person to person, and as a result, you can actually, what, what's nice about it is you can attract a much more diverse set of product managers. 
you don't have to attract a, a sort of a mono product manager who biases in the same ways to support an organization like that. I think something that I've sort of uniquely sort of understood at WellSimple, given the way that we're, we've been organized, and it's sort of unlocked a more powerful, more reverse, and, and I think a more resilient team because we have product managers that are just very different, have very different strengths, but ultimately, you know, are that strengths that are really appropriate for the domains in which they're working in. How often do you see crossover between, you know, product managers that have a bias to one wanting to move over to the other side of even to gain experience or whatnot, or, 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 or is it typically that like they know what they're good at and, and, and they like to stay in those domains? It happens sometimes for sure. Uh, a person desire to, you know, so migrate to the new context. But I would also say that maybe less often, less often than you think, mm-hmm. which is to say, I think a, a lot of product managers sort of choose to develop and go really deep on the skill set that is most applicable to the role that they're in. I mean, at the end of the day, it's not like they're getting so niche that they're no longer to be employable in a different contexts. We're still mm-hmm. talking about a very multidisciplinary role. But I have found that a lot of product managers want to go deep in the area that they that they work and really sort of hone that skill set. And I would say that's more so the norm. But we always sort of you know keep the option open for for mobility within the organization too. Got it. I'm going to take a question uh, that uh, someone on Twitter replied when when I shared that we were doing this. Um, I think it can play from your experiences in either FreshBooks and well simple the question is how do we build a strong product org in a company that is transitioning from a founder led org to one of more ownership and accountability uh, led org right yeah i'll talk about well simple a little bit because i think well simple has a very interesting founder dynamic mm-hmm. there are you know three main co-founders um mike Katchen, the ceo rudy uh adler who's sort of leads our brand and marketing teams. And um, uh, Brett Honeycutt, who's my boss, who's CEO. And it's interesting because these, these three folks had worked together on a, in a previous startup, a YC startup actually called A Thousand Memories. Um, and so this was sort of a second uh, company that they sort of co-founded and worked on together. But it's an interesting dynamic because the three of them, in a lot of ways, complement each other's strengths. It doesn't end up feeling like a single founder-led company. Like Mike is an amazing sort of CEO and visionary business leader. You know, Rudy is an amazing sort of brand and sort of creative marketer uh, and creative leader, and also um, also brings a certain sort of um, product visionary aspect as well. And then Brett is like highly analytical, extremely data-driven, experiment-driven, and so. The three of them form this kind of like amazing trifecta at the top as founders. And why that why this detail is relevant to your question is that that group has already formed the basis of a team that brings sort of different perspectives, different skills, different strengths to the table. As a result, they're able to build teams underneath them that are also similarly collaborative and similarly balanced between those uh, sort of different aspects of building a company, whether it's sort of creative, inspiring creative, to um, you know, inspiring company vision, to a really strong analytical and uh, experimental sort of uh, lens. And, and I think that's like, that's a unique feature of this company versus a lot of other companies which are like founder led, but generally that means that there's like one founder who is 
you know, uh, exhibits one of those traits or biases to like one of those traits, they sort of possess this like really interesting combination of skills. And as a result, I think we're a more collaborative organization as a result because they, they were forced to collaborate. They were forced to feed off each other and, and, and leverage each other's strengths and, and, and weaknesses. And so therefore we are too. And I think that's been, that's been really interesting. And it's been, it's been a sort of, it's made the transition from a purely founder-led company to a, like a larger scale company that, you know, needs more distributed ownership easier, you know, because it was always there. It was, it was never not there, this idea of sort of both collaboration and sort of relying on each other for our respective strengths. And contrast that for, you know, to get the other side of the question, contrast that with Rushbooks where Mike was, you know, was a very product minded uh, founder, you know, as, as the company scaled, how did uh, the product management organization evolve to, you know, continue to allow him to drive certain things, scale itself, build its own accountability? Very big question, but any, you know, any key differences, I think, in comparing the two. I mean, I can, I can even share some of my experiences there, right? So, you know, when, when I joined and I was on your team, Mike was in every single, every single product review meeting. Basically, if he's not okay with it, it's not going through. And, and over time, though, you know, especially with a lot of your work and, and Casey's as well, we had areas of the product, I think, that we were able to have a bit more agency. And so I think the spirit of the question is sort of like that evolution. How do you begin to build a founder's trust in you as a product leader that, you know, you can actually ship something end end without them knowing and it'll be great? Or at least not. I think you're. I, I think you're onto something that I. I think uh, rings true for me, which is that I think in the context of um, of a company like FreshBooks, where there really is sort of a, a really strong single founder like Mike uh, McDermott, you need to ultimately sort of create create trust, and I think you do that in a couple ways. One is that I think you bring in folks who, um, you know, sort of have outside expertise and outside, you know, wisdom and knowledge that, you know, maybe he doesn't possess himself. And I, but I think the other way is, I kind of, as you sort of alluded to, is like establishing sort of like process and a certain amount of guardrails that basically create a system that enforces quality, that ensures that what we're building is aligned with strategy, um, and ultimately, the execution of that, you know, aligns with sort of the, our, you know, our, our UX principles, our, our um, you know, our, our technical principles, our, our product principles, um, such that like we are, we're kind of extracting what's in Mike's head and turning it into sort of codified rules and systems and processes that ultimately sort of allow Mike to scale. Yeah, that was probably more important in that context. Um, than in the well simple context. Yeah. Yeah. And I think in any case, you know, through my experiences, there's also just as a product leader, you have to say, like, you need to give me space. You need to give my team space. You have to just trust us and let us fail or fire me, basically, because we can't, we cannot scale this way. Uh, that talk always has to happen at some point. And in fact, has to happen, has to happen multiple, multiple times as you continue to scale. And, and I think, you know, having a great relationship with the CEO and the founder or whoever it may be is, is, is paramount to, to being able to actually progress the organization that way. Um, but, but as a product leader, I always feel like it, 
it's my responsibility to like have that fight basically and put yourself on the line, so to speak, to be able to, to create the agency for your team. Uh, to do their I, I think that's very true. I agree. And I had some tough conversations, but it, you know, as a testament to the growth of that company of Mike, of hopefully me too, as you mentioned, uh, you know, when, when, when I started, when you started, you know, we were, we were in design reviews with the CEO debating button copy, but you know, four years in, he entrusted us, you, me, and a couple other PMs to lead a redesign of the entire product. So, um, and you can certainly involve, but at a, at a higher, at a higher level and, you know, lower fidelity. And I think that just sort of represents that not the goalpost did shift, but like in a positive way, like the, the envelope of trust, uh, <laughs> kept increasing and increasing over time. And I think as a result of both demonstrating that we could, we, we could systematize the things that he cared about. And ultimately we could deliver in a, in a way that was, you know, that met the standard of quality that, you know, he has, he had maintained as sort of a, a founder for so many years. Let's talk about Simple's product. I got a question. Why is it five products? Why isn't it one super product? Um, that's a great question. You know, I'll, I'll say that like some of our products are, are, are integrated within the same app. So for example, um, trade and crypto are two separate products which are integrated into a single app. But you're quite right that, that a bunch of the other ones are separate apps today. There is advantages to launching new products especially pre-product market fit products as standalone products. I mean, talk about, you know, uh, you know, not having to deal with legacy baggage, whether it be code or design, you know, patterns or, you know, some combination thereof or internal team processes that, you know, would slow down the sort of launch of a new product, like even things that are less, a little less, a little more abstract and a little less tangible, like all of that kind of goes away when you get to build a, when you, when you build a new product. That doesn't mean that it's that there's no trade-offs, and the trade-offs ultimately are it's much higher friction, especially for your existing customers. You know, you have to context switch between multiple apps and move funds between these apps, and ultimately sort of deal with the complexity. Uh, you know, especially if you're using multiple, you know, multiple well simple products. But the other thing is that from a business perspective, that friction means it's lower probability that a person's going to cross sell because it's like, oh God, I gotta. I got to download another app and log in. What's my password? Oh, I don't have my password manager set up on this phone, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, there are certainly advantages for speed to market that come with like launching standalone apps, especially again, pre-product market fit apps where you kind of want the ability to iterate wildly, you know, fundamentally pivot, you know, what the application is or how it looks or how it behaves without like destabilizing and, disrupt and disrupting the more mature products, you know, that work. Now, is that where we, you know, is that the end of the story? You know, what I can say <laughs> is that we, we definitely want to integrate uh, our products more deeply, more seamlessly in a way that feels, that makes it super easy to try new products in a, in a, in a way that makes it, that unlocks like new value if you use our products together. So it's not just like, you know, smushing them together, but actually like what new possibilities exist if those products are more integrated that weren't possible as you know standalone entities. We definitely want to do that, and you know we definitely want to simplify sort of the mental model for our customers as well. 
Like one of the issues that we have, I can tell you, is with a passive investing product and an active investing product, people sign up for the one product. Um, so we also want to simplify the mental model. How that manifests in the apps um, remains to be seen. I can say that we, we have always a push to simplify. It's in our name. And so I, I think you can expect to see pretty significant simplifications there over the next little while. Got it. I think all those different apps actually, you know, raise an interesting question around, around Wealthsimple's view of the values or, 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 or the values of its product or even what type of customer it's building for. I'll give you an example. I know like way back when, when you started and we, you know, we were talking about Wealthsimple, a lot of the focus was on like, Hey, we want to make sure, or at least the product design principles were like, we want you to actually not look that much, right? Like this is passive investing. Don't worry about the day-to-day -day volatility. Uh, if it goes down 10% that week, like don't sell. That's the biggest mistake you can make. Like, you know, you have to trust in the long-term here. So you're actually training people to think really long-term and in some cases not even look at it. I remember we even like were ideating on funny ideas like, if they get a streak of not looking at their balance for 180 days, maybe you'll give them 10 bucks or something like that, whatever. How did that completely get disrupted when you're launching now trade, which is the exact opposite, which is like, there's no commission trading. So you're clearly, you know, in, in enticing or incenting people to, to trade a lot. Uh, and then even crypto, which is its own, you know, frenzy. How has like the persona of your customers changed or have you added more or how are you thinking about balancing that in principles around product design? I think while, you know, we've moved into, you know, active trading products like, you know, trade and crypto, I would actually say that remarkably our, our values and positions have remained exactly the same around. We do believe fundamentally that like not looking at your investments, you know, investing in broad based, well diversified portfolios is right for, you know, most people. Uh, we still believe that. And, and I'll say trade as a product is not necessarily uh, intrinsically opposed to that. You can buy uh, ETFs on trade, including the Wealthsimple ETF, uh, our SRI and Halal ETF. There is a, like a large number of people who use Wealthsimple trade as just a way of you know, managing their own passive investing portfolio. But what I would say is something that we learned early on with trade is that it was a really effective customer acquisition tool. And if you think about why that is, Think about the customer onboarding journey for someone joining Invest versus somebody joining Trade. If you join Invest, it's like you basically have to decide. Now, you don't really have to, but like the, what it feels like you have to decide is to move your whole net worth to Wealthsimple. I got to move all of my long-term savings to Wealthsimple. I have to understand beyond what stocks are. I have to understand what passive investing is. I have to understand what a managed portfolio is. And we, we try and simplify all that stuff. But the onus is pretty high on the user to sort of grok a lot of things at once. And it feels like a high barrier of entry, even though we actually allow you to invest as little as $1 in, in invest. The notion of a product is that, you know, it really should be, you know, where you save for your retirement. So it feels like a high switching cost uh, for a lot of folks, even though, you know, again, th th there's actually no need to, to, you know, switch your portfolio on day one. Now contrast that with Wealthsimple Trade. To get set up on Wealthsimple Trade, deposit some money and buy one stock. Now, the barrier of entry is just psychologically and otherwise so low. It's like you don't have to be committed to Wealthsimple to buy one stock with Wealthsimple. 
You simply have to buy one stock. You know, you can buy stocks that are worth like a dollar on Wellsimple. So like your 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 minimum investment, again, psychologically, monetarily, and otherwise on Wellsimple trade is relatively lower than it is on on invest. And I think where that bears out is that it's been an incredibly powerful and successful tool at acquiring lots of customers. But over time, we want to educate the customers that we acquire through trade and through crypto and through you know these mass market um, you know these effective mass market sort of uh, products about sort of responsible long term investing and what that means and I think that over time our expectation is you know they some a certain amount of them will cross sell to invest a certain amount of them will perhaps just make more conservative choices in terms of the, por- the the portfolio that they construct themselves within trade. Ultimately, we're not necessarily going to force uh, the decision one way or the one way or the other, but hopefully, by educating these folks, by getting them sort of comfortable and aware of some of the concepts of stock trading, the the virtues of diversified investing, you know, they'll make better choices over time, and and that's sort of uh, agnostic of which of our products they choose to make those choices on. And so that's where I think we see, that's why I'd say we're kind of remarkably consistent. Uh, we just launched 12 new crypto coins on our platform uh, yesterday or two days ago. And we sent an email basically saying like, hey, here's 12 reasons why you shouldn't buy these and why you shouldn't invest in crypto. And I think that represents our you know, a consistent marketing message that we've had since the very beginning, which is we don't believe in speculative investing. We don't believe in these things. Uh, ultimately, you know, if this is a way for you to get familiar and comfortable with the basics of, uh, of investing, great, do that on our platform. And then we can safely over time help you transition to a, a more sort of balanced portfolio that ultimately helps you, you know, reach your financial goals. That's great. It's great. Slightly different question, more around the business environment. Uh, so based on, and I know, you know, maybe there's only so much you want to say, but based on Wealth Simple's experiences, what does Canada's financial regulators need to do better or differently so that fintech startups in Canada can better compete with the U.S.? Sure, I, I think that uh, it's a great point, and you know we partner closely with the regulators and you know ha- have a good relationship with them. I think certainly open banking is an important element to ensure a level playing field. Uh, both what is industry. open banking? What is open banking? Open open banking is ultimately about. Um, and I'm certainly by no means the expert on open banking, but fundamentally at its core, a big tenet of it is that um, a customer's financial sort of data should be uh, freely accessible to that customer to enable them to like, you know, uh, both better understand and have greater transparency into their their existing financial relationships, but also to make it easier for them to switch from one bank to another or, you know, from, from, a, from a bank to a fintech or, or vice versa. Uh, by making the data uh, less locked in to the individual participant that you happen to be have an existing relationship with. It's one element that we think Canada could progress substantially around, uh, around evolving towards a more open banking framework and system. The other piece uh, that I might add is supporting, I mean, and, and you know we're working. We, you know we're the first regulated crypto platform in Canada, as an example. So we're working closely with the regulators, but ultimately we just need to make sure that there is a responsible framework in place to foster safe, 
but also potentially disruptive financial and, and fintech innovation in Canada, perhaps less so for you know established companies like well simple in the fintech space that have like you know longstanding relationships with regulators, but for the next generation of fintech companies, because I think we believe that like every market is better uh, with more competition and you know with more players, which actually means like lowering the barrier of entry uh, for companies again in a safe, responsible context to to enable more more competition. Um, and I think there's good there's there's decent models that have existed uh, that exist in in Europe and other places that have sort of enabled fintech to sort of accelerate, you know, path to market, um, but still in a regulated context. And I think that there's opportunity, there's always opportunity uh, for that, uh, for improvement in the, in the Canadian market, especially. And I think it's also important because the Canadian market is relatively, relatively small in contrast with, you know, all of Europe or all, all, all of the US. And so I think we need to make sure that uh, the regulation supports innovation. Um, and, and, you know, ultimately, you know, that companies will be interested in, in innovating here. And, and really launching new products and new services here, ultimately to the benefit of the Canadian citizen and the Canadian consumer. That's amazing. Thank you for sharing that. That was great. Final question, I think, around product, and then we'll wrap up. You know, you've had a pretty long product career now. You've done companies of various stages and, and different growth rates as well. Over the last 10 years, what has changed about product management and what is what is still the same? I'd probably say what I what has stayed the same is always start by defining the problem you're looking to solve. <laughs> I think that there's something fundamental, <laughs> elemental, and it's not even just uh, isolated to product management, but about you know uh, innovation <laughs> that needs to be true, which is don't lead with a solution, <laughs> um, don't lead with an idea, but lead with a problem. You know, when I think about the way I structure documents that I write today versus documents that I wrote 10 years ago, hopefully they're better today, but, uh, but the structure is the same. They always follow, and I tell this to every PM, is like, you should bore yourself with the structure of a strategic sort of paper that you're writing that espouses a particular, like, the structure should never, you should never innovate on that, which is that it should be, you know, it should be context, it should be problem, it should be, you know, sort of hypothesis and goal. Uh, and then describe your solution. You know, in some respects, I'm like sort of describing the scientific method, but like adapted to a sort of a product software context or innovation context. And that never changes. It, um, it is a universal truth. And so again, it, there's no need to innovate on that. <laughs> you know, it's worked for like a thousand years and plus. That never changes. And so I guess what I'm saying there is that like, and it doesn't matter what you're working on, what industry, what context, whether it's a feature or a, higher level strategy or um, uh, you know, platform capability or an ecosystem strategy, it doesn't matter. It all follows this like universal conceptual framework. Uh, and it always starts with a problem. <laughs> what also hasn't changed is like the best product managers are rigorous, thoughtful, uh, nuanced people who are really good at synthesizing a whole bunch of different information into a clear problem statement. Like that to me is the true genius of, of, of really great product managers is like this synthetic thinking where they can piece together all these complicated different inputs into something cogent. What is the problem? And then from there, okay, therefore, what is the goal? And therefore, what is the hypothesis and solution? 
so that's never going to change to my mind. I, I think maybe what has changed, there, there's a couple different things I could say, which is, you know, as software continues to eat the world, product managers uh, find themselves working in domains that they, that, you know, previously uh, they didn't work in. At some point, fintech was there, but it's no longer sort of novel, but like it's healthcare, it's suitcases and tra and uh, and 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 you know travel. It's it's all sorts of different contexts that I think, as software continues to grow, the product management field grows even more and more. And I I think the interesting thing is that despite the fact that the context in which product managers operate continues to grow and grow and grow as software continues to eat the world, that doesn't mean that it's kind of try to bridge these two thoughts. That doesn't mean that like. Product managers now do need to be experts in new domain X. Rather, it means that they need to bring the same rigorous first principles thinking, not abandoning these sort of universal frameworks because the context is new and, the, and no one's ever brought that framework to this new context. The, the real challenge is like, how do you adapt that universal product management framework for that net new context that has never sort of had uh, that the pro that product managers have never historically worked in. Like, how do you adapt that universal problem-solving framework to this completely new industry or a completely new context that hasn't had that kind of thinking in it before? And I think that that is like a place where, even though it's changing rapidly, it's always the same. And and, and maybe that's that's sort of the bridge between those two thoughts. Amazing. Thank you, Avram. Uh, thank you for all the time. It's it's been great, you know, getting to learn about your your life and career, and a lot of tidbits here for for PMs and anyone in, in industry as well. Before we sign off, is there anything you'd like to share, like or, or a message you'd want to get out to the audience? Anything at all? Um, We're hiring. I'd say right? just keep. Well, <laughs> we're definitely hiring. We're hiring a lot. So yeah, always looking for talented product managers uh, to join our organization. Uh, and maybe the second thing is like, just keep building cool stuff that solves real problems. I think that that makes the world better. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to the podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. To get notified of the next episode, please hit subscribe wherever you're listening to this. And if you want early access to the next podcast and any other written content, please subscribe to my Substack at blackboxfpm.substack.com. Take care.